coming to get you, Barbara. Be afraid. Groovy. We all go a little mad sometimes. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your friend. My argument is kind of a bitch. I have to close my eyes. Did I open them? Hold on! What do you say? It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Hello and welcome back to Gavin's Death. This is the Forces of Evil, where each episode we delve into another dark corner of horror to select a genre, subject, or topic to dissect and submit an entry to a guest judge in an attempt to win a point that will total up throughout the season. I've got my co-host with me, and much like me, he hasn't been twelve for a long time. How are you doing, Gav? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. To, to very much paraphrase there, <laughs> I just change the context a little bit. Um. So, Gav, this week we're diving in, we're doing Euro horror. It's an interesting concept. So, do you believe there's such a thing as Euro horror, or do individual countries have their own take on the horror? Uh, is there such a thing as European horror? Yes, I suppose, up to a point, in that European filmmaking is different to American and British filmmaking. And European films often have uh, a kind of a similar feel. You know, we've picked two films today from countries, different ends of Europe. They have quite similar feels. They have quite similar atmosphere to them. So, yes, to a degree. But no, not really is is a simple answer (laughs) for me. In that, you know, if you look at the films of Italy, the Giallo films, you know, kind of, they were based, uh, they were a tradition of quick and cheap filmmaking. And then you have the French New Extremity, which is you know, taking American ideas and just ramping them right up. And then you do the Spanish horror cinema, which is largely about kind of the civil war and about the generation of lost in Spain. So you have a you have a breadth of different kinds, you know. And all through the seventies, they all seem to favour uh, lesbian vampire movies as well. But you know, most of the countries. But don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to our episode, the lesbian vampire episode. But, uh, <laughs> but, what, not, what, but not lesbian vampire killers with James oh, Corden. Nothing with James Corden, nothing. <laughs> no. you know, if, if you really want to upset me, if you win the season, either make me watch Martyrs again or make me watch Peter Rabbit again. And I think I'd rather watch Martyrs. Well, I'm glad you said that about Peter Rabbit because everyone seems to love Peter Rabbit and I just don't get it. And I've not watched Paddington for the same reason. Everyone seems to rave over Paddington and I can't, although I do love the, I don't know if you've seen the Twitter account, the Paddington, the different films, one of my favourite Twitter accounts ever, the Invisible Man take. is (laughs) On the the show. Just the the base paw print in the steam. Amazing. (laughs) What about for yourself, Steph? Do you think there's such a thing as Euro horror, or are we making this up for a nice, easy episode? <laughs> well, I don't think it was an easy episode. It was anything bar easy. The, the, the two films we picked, neither of them are, are particularly nice watches. All they're fantastic films. They're not an easy watch by any means. But I think there's Euro horror, at least in the sense of, as you said, when you compare it to what America and even what Britain are putting out, it's not as formulaic. It's not as audience friendly as it were. Like it's not there as a tick box exercise. It doesn't follow this plot or this theme. I think if you're writing a Euro horror, 
you don't get these, you know, you've always got the, like, don't kill the cat and these yeah. kind of writing books where writers and directors, this is how you make a film, this is how a plot goes, this is the way the twist comes, at what point, the exact minute in the film, what pay, like, that you can't apply that to Euro horror. And I think that's true throughout Europe. And it's always got that sort of dark, gothy edge, no matter what they're doing. It's always got that darkness about it. So I think that exists, but as you said, it's kind of all um, influenced by its own history as well. I think that's the thing with it, especially Spain. Like whether it's just Del Toro as well, because Del Toro seems to have his finger in just about everything more recent. But it's always around that history and that civil war, which is perhaps great as well because we've got three Welsh people on the podcast, and and the Spanish civil war is quite big in Welsh history, rather rather <laughs> strangely for anyone who's listening to this outside of Wales may not know, but. Uh, yeah, it's very much tied into each nation's own history and own identity as well. So, as uh, Steph alluded to, we have a guest, and the guest is a fellow Welshman. Our guest is Philip Gwynne-Jones. Philip is an author, the author of the Nathan Sutherland Venetian Mysteries, books about the honorary consul in Venice solving crimes, but also eating an awful lot of food and drinking an awful lot of wine. So, uh, and uh, you're a, a native, or certainly a resident of uh, of Venice yourself, Philip. So, is there such a thing as European horror, or is it very specific to places and cultures? Well, my goodness. First of all, it's lovely to be here. Fantastic to be here tonight. Um, secondly, is there such a thing as Euro horror? I don't know if you can actually tie it down to a continent, because you know, if you think of Italian horror, there is the giallo thing, I suppose is the great contribution there. Germany, we think maybe of the crimi movies of the 60s. France, the new extremism. Spain, probably hundreds of mad films by Jess Franco and things like that. <laughs> yeah, and definitely this more recent link, maybe with, with the Spanish Civil War, as you were saying. If there is such a thing as Euro horror, and I'm not sure it actually applies to the ones we're going to watch tonight, maybe that the coherence of plot and good taste is not necessarily seen as being, you know, over-important, perhaps. If you want a zombie fighting a shark, yeah, we'll find a way to make it happen. We'll have a zombie fighting a shark. That's fine. If you have the business about not shooting the cat, not shooting the dog, oh, yeah, we'll do terrible things to, um, to animatronic dogs and we'll get us into all sorts of trouble with the sensors, things like that. So good taste kind of goes out the window and plot coherence can go out of the window. But there is, I think, an amazing visual element to some of the greatest Euro horrors. And that's what always attracted me to it. Uh, particularly it Italian horror is my theory. And the great films of Argento and Bava. Um, none, neither of which we're doing tonight, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we, we almost did Suspiria, and I almost did the remake last week. But uh... Yeah, that would have been interesting, but I'd have been sat here saying, no, no, Argento, 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 all the way through, so it would have been kind of frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think as well that the, the culture of the countries have had an influence as well? So you talk about Jess Franco, and Jeff mm. Franco was, uh, was particularly much kicking back against Generalissimo Franco and the, you yeah. know, kind of uh, the censorship and the heavy, the overt influence of Catholic Church in Spain. I definitely, yeah. I mean, thinking about Spain and France in particular, definitely in the 60s and 70s, there's a definite kicking back against very, very conservative governments or regimes in the case of Spain in both countries, 
definitely trying to push the envelope and be transgressive if they can. Lots of Italian films of the early 70s, which are having a dig at the Catholic Church, for example. I mean, there's, um, there's a wonderful thing. Is it um, Chi la vista morire, which features a villainous priest? And it's, it's a very, very good film, beautiful to look at, wonderful score by Ennio Morricone, and even George Lazenby is doing a bit of acting there, you know. But right at the end of it, the villainous priest, the shock ending, is a man running after the George Lazenby character and saying, no, he's not a priest at all. And that's what they had to do to get it past the censors. You know, it was about this ridiculous plot twist at the end that this character was just pretending to be a priest. He wasn't actually a bad priest. So there's a lot of kicking back against, you know, the, the norms and the rules of society at that time, definitely. But that's why people talk about sort of the badly dubbed Italian films. But obviously that was the thing to get it yeah. past the censors, because often what the actors were taught, sometimes English actors, so they could have they could have done it perfectly, but it was yeah. purposely it was a different script that they were actually acting. Well, quite often, I think. Yeah, yes. it, it was yeah. dubbed in with something entirely different that wouldn't have got past <laughs> censors otherwise. So yeah, yeah. it's uh, like you say very covert in the way that they got those messages mm. out sometimes. Mm. <laughs> I. Gav, do you want to take us then onto our first pick on whether it exists or otherwise, Euro horror? So, for uh, my choice, we discover that vampires don't just live in castles or in forests, but we go to 1980 suburban Stockholm and discover an eternally young vampire and a budding romance as we uh, go towards Let the Right One In. So, let the right one in. Now, I'm partially going to talk about the film. I'm partially going to talk about how I fell out of love with Morrissey. And uh, let me <laughs> let me explain, <laughs> let me explain my reasons. Conference of our time, yes. <laughs> so, the title is from a Morrissey lyric. Uh, let the right one in is from one of his solo lyrics. And I, I was a huge Smiths fan. I was a huge Morrissey fan. I used to go to Smiths conventions. I was that person. And 
it, when his politics become a bit more clear and a bit more apparent, I kind of fell out the love of Morrissey a bit. So this is partially going to be uh, me saying goodbye to Morrissey and his uh, songs to the outsiders, but it's also going to be looking at you know, kind of what I think is probably one of the best films of the 21st century, mm. in my view. I have to say, I'm sitting opposite my wife here, who loved Morrissey with an, such an absolute passion. And to see the last few years of what he's become has just been so, so sad, basically. Yeah. I, yeah. Maybe that's all we'll say about Morrissey tonight. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say a bit more because each of my <laughs> chapters are named after a Smith's lyric. Oh, well, there we go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But that would be good, Morrissey, not bad, Morrissey. <laughs> yes. So we're going to start with our first chapter, Last Night I Dreamt That Somebody Loved Me. And this is a film that is absolutely dripping in loneliness and loss and sadness and adolescent angst and just a feeling of missing out on things. And lots of his lyrics are about that. And this film is absolutely about this, this sense that in the suburbs... We're on the edge of things. You get a feel that there's a bigger world out there. There's talk about the Russians and talk about Brezhnev. But there's this slow this world. And all the way through the film, you are meant to feel like you're observing. You are never part of it. And the way it builds this atmosphere of being slightly withdrawn is the number of really kind of quite long shots quite wide, quite quite far away, and you are observing, you're never part of it. And But the, despite this almost kind of voyeuristic take on it, and it is a film about voyeurism and a film about, you know, how we see, but we don't always uh, react as well. Despite the voyeurism, you, the, the sense of sadness is palpable, and not just of Oscar and, and Ellie, the, the main characters, but also of the, the kind of, the supporting characters, like the kind of local drunks, like Yorkie and all those guys, you feel this sense of sadness and it is palpable all the way through it. And it's done, it's almost dreamlike at times. The snow, you know, and the snow we've had today in the UK isn't quite like the snow we have in Stockholm, but you know, the, the snow brings an almost kind of dreamlike quality to it. It, it gives a and goes to the camera at times. It's and there's lots of long tracking shots through this kind of goes like snow, and everything just feels slightly just that there's this aching all the way through it. And the characters themselves they just demonstrate this kind of aching sense of loss. And even when you see really kind of really horrific things, it, it's done at a, a slight step back. So when uh, Ellie kills the, the guy in the, the archway, uh, the kind of the subway, you're not getting this horrific murder. What you're actually getting is urban life, you know, kind of disconnect of urban life and that natural fear we all have when we go on the subways in kind of urban areas. It, it's a film that never really allows you to to get in, you never feel anything negative about Oscar and Ellie because all the time it's just loaded on this senseless atmosphere of sadness and loneliness. And Steph always says that I say the characters aren't particularly likable. Well, you know, I think Ellie, despite being a hugely murderous psychopath, is hugely likable because all him kind of to quote Morrissey, 
you know, she just wants to be loved like everybody else does. And that is just all the way through it. You just get a real sense of people being lost, of people being lonely. And the, the scenes of the, the, well, the kind of housing estate, I suppose, that they live on, at times, it, it doesn't feel like a fiction. It feels like a documentary, just these long tracking shots of tower blocks against orangey, snowy skies. It, it's very 80s kind of cinema verite almost, you know. It feels like an 80s documentary or the... Uh, the work of uh, Nick Danziger, the uh, photojournalism of Nick Danziger, it's really kind of, it, it's making you feel for these characters and all the characters, you know, and it, the villains are quite villainous, but in the kind of way that 12-year-old kids are villainous, so even they aren't dislikable, and, you know, kind of, and you are, you do feel slightly uh, conflicted at the end when, when Ellie kills the, uh, the bullies, because you know, you're thinking this is children. This is children that this uh, this is happening to. Uh, and it's kind of uh, what it also does as well. The sense of disconnect that people living in 20th century has. There's lots of uh, when Hack and uh, Ellie's kind of uh, familiar with boarding up the windows and stuff. There's a sense that we are being excluded from each other. That we are being pushed away from each other, and it's you know, it's just a, a film that never allows you to think these characters deserve what's happening to them. Any of it, from from being killed by vampires all the way through to the the, you know, the terrible relationship that Oscar has with his father, and all these other things, and. The film always hints at the idea of transgressions below the surface. You know, kind of Hakan is clearly a paedophile, and that is, you know, is part of his punishment. Is this kind of fact he now has to murder people for a twelve-year-old vampire? And you know, there's certainly the suggestion that Oscar's father is alcoholic. But none of this stuff is front and centre. It's these kind of hidden, aching lonelinesses that we have. So my uh, that's my first chapter. You know, I just wonder if either of you have a, a take on the sense of loneliness and sense of uh, disconnect uh, throughout the film. I, I think it's, it's pivotal to it, really, isn't it? I mean, the loneliness of it is... It is palpable. The only sense of warmth and love in this film comes from Oscar and Ellie, the weird kid and the vampire kid. And I know you've talked before about, um, you know, when we were young and that, and uh, the horror kids, you know, being kind of the outsiders and things like that. And, you know, I, I, I still teach part-time. And, you know, you go into class and it's a new class and you're asking them questions. And there might be one kid there who's a bit different. And they're the kids who will maybe say, you know, I'm reading Edgar Allan Poe or I'm reading Stephen King or H.P. Lovecraft. And you think, oh, you're interesting. And then maybe you notice that they're not sitting with anybody else. And so your next thought is, God, I hope they're all right. You know, yeah, I hope you've got pals. I hope, I hope you know, I hope um, everything's good with you. Um, but yes, the only sense of love is coming from the vampire. And the weird kid. The other thing which you said, which was very interesting, was that gauze-like effect 
um, of the snow. It's a very, very muted palette in this film. And that's what works spectacularly well, because there's not much blood in it, but when there is, my goodness me, the contrast there with this very muted palette is really interesting. And that I think that's deliberate, isn't it? You know, it's like, it's trying to show the, you know, the nature of horror, the nature of murder by having blood splattering against snow and all yeah. that. And like you say, all it, these great... It's very visceral murder as well, isn't it? You know, it it's, is. um, yeah, it's not just, you know, and I love Christopher Lee beyond <laughs> what is natural, really, but, you know, the, the two pinpricks in the neck are not doing it anymore. This is very, you know, physical, grisly, visceral murder, I think, yeah. But yeah, I, I agree as well with say with the loneliness. It is it's clearly is a vampire film, but more than that, it's kind of an adolescent film. It's like growing up as as an outsider. And when I say like an adolescent film, not like high school musical or fucking Twilight, like it's very different in those senses. But it's very much I always feel like an outsider, it's kind of like almost like goth culture committed to, to film. But Twilight is actually a really interesting point, isn't it? Because Twilight is a romance set in the world of horror, you know, between two outsiders falling in love. And this is exactly the same. They it say, is exactly the same, but Twilight doesn't convince me for a flipping moment. That's no. <laughs> yeah, but this does. This is two very wounded young people, the weirdos, the outsiders. If anything, it feels more like sort of like, like heavenly creatures, but for, for fans of the cure. Like, and I say that as a fan <laughs> of the cure, but like, that that's kind of the the vibe again. that bond between the two of them above all mm. else. Then that these people who don't really treat them the way that they should be treated. Yeah. So yeah, heavenly creatures is what it reminded me of. I said, but a bit more dark and goth and dingy. Yeah, yeah I, I, I say that a few episodes ago. You mentioned having the Muppet version of the Omen. Yeah, well. <laughs> The musical of Let the Right One In. I would go and see that. Yes, I would go and see a musical version of Let the Right One In. Well, well actually, that's a, a very useful uh, point because it leads me into my second chapter, which is called And Don't Forget the Songs That Saved Your Life. Because music is really, really important to this. And now it's important in two ways. It's important in that, you know, kind of in the, the way for me, the pop music, particularly bands like the Smiths, uh, gave me the words that I didn't have to kind of explain the language uh, or explain the feelings I had. Pop music was a language to explain my kind of emotional feelings when I was 16, 17, younger than as well, because I wasn't particularly emotionally intelligent. And it's interesting that they use music in exactly the same way that Oscar and Ellie as these absolute outsiders are using pop music to explain their feelings and explain how, explain to each other what they feel and what they think. And there's a scene when they go to the kind of the hideout, I suppose, with the older kids, and there's a cassette, and it's, you know, kind of it's Swedish early 80s pop music. I can't pretend to be a, uh, an expert on it. And I, and I don't speak enough Swedish, you know, and kind of last week we discovered if I spoke Norwegian, I could have saved the world. And this week I, I could have worked out exactly what they, these two characters were trying to say to each other if I spoke Swedish. But that pop music, whatever it's saying, is the kind of hidden language, the, the unsaid language between Oscar and Ellie. And I think that is really, really kind of important to the song because... I was an outsider kid, you know, and I, and, and I like 
heavy metal and weird indie and I like weird horror books and and I played role-playing games and I wanted to say how I felt to people but I could never do it but that's why songs were there and those two scenes there's two scenes when they listen to pop music together and that's the point that's that's your romance scene that's you know you're kind of uh uh what's the word they use uh, to describe it? Like your, your reach around that you're having a, a rom-com when the main character gets to reach around the female lead for whatever to reason, show her how to do a golf swing or whatever in a rom-com. Well, this is never going to happen in this film. So this is your kind of musical reach around almost. I'm sure that's not <laughs> the most delicate term. But, I, uh, I, I don't like the, the term musical reach around. That's <laughs> It's a genre in itself. Some of them are coming like a weekly email to you. <laughs> the position, <laughs> position of the week. <laughs> Wait, what was that magazine? Sugar or whatever it was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But also, uh, I think the other thing that's interesting as well, and I'll come to the last bit, this, uh, in, but the, the sound design is, is really interesting too. In that lot, like the first sounds you hear, are the sound of suburban life. And that breaks through an awful lot. When you're not hearing the music, only, and you're not hearing just a quiet lift of snow, you hear dogs barking, you hear telephones ringing in the background, you hear the sound of trains clattering, and it is the sound of suburbia. And uh, now I should remember this, because I've taught this bloody poem a million times, but I can't remember the exact words. There's a, a Carol Ann Duffy uh, poem called uh, A Prayer, I think it's called. And uh, and there's a line, something like, and in, uh, and in the distance, somebody names a lost. And it's almost like the, that poem is almost like the background of this, this idea that life goes on and life with all its complexities is just soundtracked by these suburban sounds these rare train lines and and again it's that smiths it's the atmosphere of the smiths it's that atmosphere that life goes on around you and you aren't really part of it and that but then when horrific stuff happens as well the sound design is properly grisly and when ellie is feeding it sounds like someone is tearing at flesh and when horrific things are happening it sounds horrific it never shies away from using sound in that sense and then the last part of the, the music to it is the score is heartbreaking. And, you know, it's, I don't think this is a horror film. It's a romance. It has a, it has a romance theme that plays whenever they're together. And it's quieter at first, and it's not as complex. And by the end of the film, their theme is fully fledged. It's orchestral. It's got strings. It is absolutely all over it. But it does the horror thing as well, that the emotional and human inter uh, interconnection is done via strings, but then all the kind of weirdness and all the, the horror, woodwind and brass and percussion is used. It's, it's a fantastic score. And uh, I found myself uh, on my walk to work last couple of, well, last couple of days of just listening to the soundtrack. And it is fantastic, even in removal from from the visuals of the film. Uh, so yeah, kind of, it's it's a film in which music is a, an integral part of, of everything, as it often is in the films we chose. So uh, gentlemen, your takes on uh, the use of music and sound in the film. 
Yeah, you're, you're spot on with this business about when you're a kid, you need to have something that kind of marks you out. Okay, so it'll get you into a little gang or a little group or something. So there's always, always a kind of band you have to like. You've got to be like a new, a new romantic kid or a punk rock kid or a heavy metal kid, things like that. And that's what divides you into certain things. And you mentioned role-playing games, and yeah, I, I still play role-playing games and stuff like that. And Oscar's got his little niche, which has kind of been forced on him because he's being bullied in that he's kind of become an expert on crime and murder stories and to the extent that he's genuinely thinking about killing his bullies, which, whoa, is going into a very, very dark place. But that kind of emphasis on his obsession with crime is his little niche, if you like. The bit on the score is very interesting because genuinely... I didn't twig it much at the time, but I do listen to a lot of um, a lot of soundtracks, especially if I'm writing, because I can't listen to word to, to pop songs or anything with music when I'm with lyrics when I'm writing. So s soundtracks are great for me. And I listened to this and listened to this one over and over again. And thought that's a, that's a, that's a very very good piece. It's a very good soundtrack, and it works symphonically. It's punctuated, as you said, by those moments of horror. And I think that works. Uh, that works brilliantly. I think, yeah. And the the, the diegetic music, the trains passing, things like that. I mean, when I was a student, and I was at Pontypridd, and I did the, the coal trains would pass at about three o'clock in the morning with this almighty racket, which would wake me up, and I'd be kind of pissed off that it woke me up. But at the same time, I'd think, oh, but there's still. That means there's still at least three hours or four hours that I can kip before I have to get up and things like that. <laughs> so there was this this very 1980s sense of living in not in a big city but just outside the big city about that about that soundtrack. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I like that you called it. You described it as Swedish pop as well. It's not it's not Ace of Base or Alba. It's definitely <laughs> it's not along those lines. Doctor Alban. But it all buys in and ties in together it's absolutely perfect like you said like it, it really complements everything that the film is trying to get across and i do think it, it's a massive thing for us in everything that we've picked so far like we're coming up towards the end of the season but almost everything we've picked the soundtrack or sometimes the lack of really buys into the atmosphere of the film and i think it's won us over on a few and the dracula ad 1972 <laughs> yes. The stone ground. I will defend the stone ground with my life, I tell you. It was one of the best parts of the film, I'll say. It was oh. one of the best parts of the film. <laughs> that, that that the um and the, the scene with the shaving mirror, that tops it all for me. That was the has there ever been a better vampire killing machine than Van Helsing in that particular scene, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Armed with a tiny shaving mirror and a, yeah. a glint of light through the curtains. <laughs> And a, shower, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a red ring power shower. The, the unluckiest vampire in the world, but yes. <laughs> but the point about soundtracks is, is true, isn't it? Because the best films, are, you know, film isn't just a visual art form, is it? You know, film, film is an oral art form as well. And the best films understand that and use sound production like The Exorcist does and use soundtrack... Like like this does, and like Rosemary's Baby does, and and uses the visual uh, stuff, and you know kind of, and I think the framing of the shots and everything else just ties in with the music, which just does such 
heavy work to carry a lot of the emotional heft of the film. And these are emotionally stunted people. You know, they're children as well, some of them. So, you know, and children are never particularly emotionally adept. And having spent most of my career dealing with teenagers, you know, kind of teenagers are not always the most emotionally capable. But the music does all that work. And but that's the point. You know, that's why it's a Morrissey lyric, because for the weird kids who didn't really get on in school, Morrissey did that work for them as well. And that's why I think music's so important. But talking about children and the role of children, I go on to my next chapter, which is called You Might Sleep But You'll Never Dream. And that line is from uh, Suffer, Suffer the Children, which is massively unpleasant for a song, probably the worst song, but also a song about the murder of children. And, you know, this isn't just about the murder of children. This is about the loss of innocence of kids. The whole film is about how none of the kids are allowed to be innocent. None of the kids are allowed to be children, really. You know, Oscar, the first scene is Oscar caught in deliverance. Now, you know, that's not film a 12-year-old should really have watched. And we've, you know, kind of, I grew up in the 80s, I saw far worse films before I was 12. But, uh, you know, like, standing and quoting the most harrowing scene from a harrowing film, you know, already you know this is a child who had been stripped of innocence. And, it, and if you think of Connie, his kind of his major bully, well, Connie's been stripped of innocence as well. And you see that later on in the relationship with his brother, because, you know, it's not natural for Connie to be as unpleasant as he is. And it's more than just bullying in the kind of sense that we've all been bullied, like, you know. This is more, this is quite unpleasant, you know, deliberately throwing his trousers in the toilet. It's focused, it's, you know, but but to be that malevolent towards another child requires the child to be stripped of innocence himself. But the interesting thing about it as well is all the adults in the film seem absolutely complicit in removing innocence from the children. So after the the murder in the woods at the start of the film where Hakan uh, is discovered by the, the poodle. And then it cuts to the policeman talking about it. And the policeman should be really matter of fact about everything that's happened because it's almost like, you know, kind of the children, and these are 12 year olds, but they inhabit in a, an adult world. So it's not just a policeman going in to talk about careers and saying, you know, we're there to keep people safe. Oh yeah, well, this probably happened. And you're thinking all the time, these are kids who aren't allowed to inhabit a child's world. They aren't allowed to do that. And then because they're listening to this horrific stuff, they're listening to stuff on the radio about the likelihood of the nuclear war of, you know, a land war in Scandinavia, which would have likely, if there was a land war in the 80s, then Finland and Scandinavia and Northern Germany would have been the battlefields. But then you cut to Oscar's interactions with other kids, and then particularly with Ellie, and you realise these are kids, and, you know, kind of kids in the, the simplest way, you know, kind of, he's just awkward and gawky and just, you know, not, not well, like every bloody 12-year-old, just, you think, oh, my God, I've been there, that's me, you know, and anybody, and I imagine anybody who would choose to watch a film about Swedish vampires 
subtitled film can look at Oscar and think, yeah, well, that was me. Because, you know, he's not a cool kid. And, you know, Steph, I know uh, I know you favour a purple uh, glittery cowboy boot, but, you know, we aren't the cool kids either because we spent our time watching horror films. I, I will say they're, they're black and gold glittery cowboy boots. Oh, sorry, I, I'm convinced they're purple. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't know why I'm convinced they're purple. <laughs> I did try to get a purple pair of boots, but they were more shiny and uh, patent leathery than, uh, <laughs> than than the glitter ones I've got now. I I, I remember my my late twenties when I when we were moving to Italy and I discarded some of my old clothes and I came across um, um, a pair of cowboy boots and a suede waistcoat and this bright <laughs> yellow Paul Smith shirt. And I thought, ah, yes, the single years, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think in the, the discussion when uh, when Oscar is talking about birthdays for Ellie, and then again we see the innocence about birthdays, or don't you know when your birthday is? You know, it's those childhood preoccupations. But then it's stripped to the fact that Ellie requires the blood of other human beings to live. And she wants to be taking part in these childish things and she wants to be doing Rubik cubes, but also she has to commit murders and she has to do quite horrific things as well. And also quite heavy about it is the you know the concept of child abuse and the child abuse in all its forms, in all the kind of nature of it. And there's a couple of scenes, there's two scenes particularly. So there's the one when Hakan is looking for a victim and he's hanging outside the gym. And the, the way it's framed, the way it's shot, it's clear what the implication is. That, you know, like Hakan isn't just a murderer. He's come here because of his you know, kind of predilections because he's a paedophile. But then there's also another shot later on when uh, Oscar is in the gym and Ellie is on the outside and she's standing in almost the same way with a hand on the glass and looking in, and it and it shows the nature of how we we exclude people, and we exclude people for lots of different reasons. We exclude people for the right reasons, because you know ultimately they are hugely transgressive and criminal. But we also exclude people because of the sense of other, and and this is a film about the other. And the, the, it's quite interesting the scene. I've I've thought about this a lot. I still don't understand the the significance of it when Oscar is at his father's and the other man comes round and, you know, kind of he's taking a drink and everything. And you're not quite sure what that relationship is about, but it clearly makes Oscar feel quite uncomfortable. And, and there's a sense of the other always kind of at the heart. I really of wondered there, and I could be wrong, um, and this is going into dark places again, I really wondered if Oscar's dad was pimping him out or something like that. Or something sleazy was going on there with this bloke who's coming around. I, I think you're certainly invited to think that, aren't you? Yeah. Whether or, yeah. N- whether or not it's really, really heavy. Whether or not, but there's something deeply wrong there because Oscar is obviously ill at ease there. And, yeah. you know, his dad is kind of, he's drinking and stuff like that. And what's going on? There's something wrong there. There's something weird, not right yeah. going on there, definitely. I, and I think as well, you know, kind of the, the book, it's uh, the book. Yeah leans far more heavily into Oscar's father's alcoholism. Mm. You know, but the book also as well, you know, the kind of sense of other, which you, you do get to an extent in you. So when Ellie says, I'm not a girl, mm. you know, kind of 
you know, the idea that she isn't a girl, she's something different to that. But in the book, she is a, a castrati. She's a boy. And, uh, you know, kind of there's that sense as well, you know. And But it's also a time, you know, it's quite touching. And when, you know, do you want to go steady? Well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that different to what we do now. And it's, it's yeah. that sense, like, you know, primary school kids, when they have boyfriends and girlfriends, and it means nothing. Yeah, it's, it's lovely, isn't it? It's just lovely, yeah. You know, because of that as well, because they are children and because of the setting, and saying, because their innocence has sort of been taken, but some of it still remains. And so it is quite darkly comedic at times. And I know that the mm. director of it was a comedy director before he made this. This was his first film outside of comedy. And he had no intention of making a horror until he'd read the book. But there's those little moments of very, very, like, not humour, like uh, what we do in The Shadows is a vampire comedy by any means. But no. it's got that dark humour that kind of laces through it every now and again. And it, it's really, it's very, that which is very much my thing anyway. But it, it really adds an extra element to it as well. And sometimes it's kind of produces like an awkward laugh, which is one of my favourite kind of laughs. I love a, I, I love a comedian who can force an awkward laugh out of someone where you feel like you, and, you shouldn't really be laughing. I, it, it adds an extra element into the whole film. It's that Smiths thing again as well. You know, when people say, oh, how can you like the Smiths? They're really depressing. Well, no, because the Smiths are actually genuinely hilarious at times in that awkward kind of blackly comic way, you know, kind of... Uh, the line yeah. and and the, and the pain was enough to make a shy bold Buddhist reflect and plan a mass murder. Yeah. You know that's a funny line. No matter no matter what way you cut it, that's a funny line. Yeah. And this and this has that sense of finding you know moments of levity in absolute pits of blackness and darkness. And that awkwardness, as you said, that awkwardness, the horror of being twelve or thirteen years yeah. old and wondering what you said to girls and Oscar says. Oh, you smell really weird. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then she comes back two nights later and she's drunk blood. And so she's kind of rejuvenated. And he says, oh, you smell different. And it's just, well, okay. I don't think I ever actually said that when I was 12 years old. <laughs> but nevertheless, that, that awfulness, not knowing what to say uh, as, as a teenager, as, as an adolescent, it's just brilliantly captured there. It's oh, just yeah. so perfectly on the nose, yeah. Yeah, it's a film about adolescence, isn't it? You know, and the interesting thing as well about it is uh, in the way that the direct opposite to the film we're going to talk about next is this is a film in which parents are present, but they are, they are removed. Parents exist. It's a useless adults movie, yes. Yeah, no, it's absolutely, and that's exactly what it is. It's a useless yeah. adults movie. There are no useful adults in that mm -hmm. film. Well, the coach is all right. He's trying to be useful. Yeah, okay, yeah. But, yeah. but he misses a lot of what's happening mm -hmm. as well, you know. Like, he isn't aware of the things that are happening around him. And it's quite interesting, you know, kind of having qualified as a teacher in the late 90s and watching the field trip on that lake. And now uh, I have a role where I'm responsible, amongst other things, for health and safety across a group of schools. And I'm like, oh my God, who's risk assessed that uh, particular trip? <laughs> you know, there's too well, many I, I'm thinking about the, the dead zone and the ice is yes. going to break. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And then, you know, you have two things happening at once, which is, you know, mm. kind of uh, very typical of uh, education, where Oscar has smashed Connie in the head with that metal pole. And the two other kids, the two younger kids, have discovered 
the dead body of Yorke under the the ice, and and there's that scene then as well again, cutting back to like how they use the the palette when the blood is pouring out of the the culvert. Uh, yeah, it's and again, it's it's quite deliberate. It's it's not subtle, you know. I'm it's kind of. I'm sure your metaphors are considerably more subtle, Philip. But you know the 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 idea of innocence lost as blood pours against snow again. You yeah. know it's it's quite, uh, you know all these kind of things. And uh, the other kind of element in it as well is there's a couple of scenes when you realise when when you almost think this is a romance. This is a romance. These are two lost souls who are bumping yeah. up against each other, and you want the best from. And then after Hakan disfigures himself, which is absolutely grotesque, you know, kind of when you see his jaw removed, and the way Ellie just pushes him out the window, and you, and you realise that yeah, they might have found each other, but they, she's lost, and you know she is lost because the casual way in which she did that, and it's it's difficult to work out what Hakan's relationship is with Ellie, is it? Love, whatever that means. Uh, without, uh, you know, I don't know why I actively quoted Princess Diana then, but you know, I didn't mean to. <laughs> 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 or is it? Is it forgiveness? Is he trying to help her to make up for his transgressions? Oh, I like that. I like that. Yes. Is he a Renfield? Is he just like a little hanger on? Or is there something he's trying to atone for? Yeah, that's that's a good reading, yeah. Because of what he does to himself, my God, what he does to himself with the acid. Yeah. And, and that's... Not trying to help your boss out. That's something deep, you know, to do that to yourself. That's that's significant to do that to yourself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There a relationship there, yeah. Yeah, no, that's more than just a kind of manic uh, yeah. will to, yeah. to serve. Yeah. Uh, something beyond that as well. You know, But that, the way that scene is done as well, because you know what he's doing, because you know what the ass is there for, but it cuts away. And you think, oh, well, you know, that's done suddenly. But then you see the effects of it as yeah. well. And, and, and I actually think... that scene is brilliantly done as well, because you see him in the hospital and it's shot really, really, really well. And you see him kind of, you know, it's slightly hazy. And you, oh, it's not that bad. He's just a bit scarred. And then you only see it for a couple of seconds. And you think, oh, my God, you know, that face is just destroyed. Very, very well done. Doesn't linger on it, but boom. And there's a similar scene. I was just going to say uh, in in the second film as well. Yes. Yeah, with the uh, with, with the bus accident, shall we yes. say? Where, yeah. yeah, it works very similarly, and we've we've got another jaw removal, even like even down to the injuries within the two films. Yes. So I, 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 Oh I God! Is this going to be another episode? Best jaw removal horror movie. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I did see. No, don't, don't, don't call me for that one, right? I'm, I'm good. Don't call me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might struggle for the all saw runs. Is the trouble? Um, <laughs> Best disfigurement. I I did say before we started recording that we never discuss our choices before we pick them. But the last two weeks running, the two have married together so well and have been so similar in some of the things. To even have a, have scenes that are as similar, <laughs> it is bizarre. There's, well, there's obviously uh, we're spending too much time together, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, last week we chose two films about paranoia, and this week we've chose two films about the loss of innocence. And uh, you know, it's but 
I think where the two films differ uh, is the kind of worlds in which they set, which leads me on to my uh, final uh, chapter, which is called Could Life Ever Be Sane Again? And this is, a, you know, kind of, it's a film which the horror is society. It, that is a suggestion that life in the suburb of Stockholm in the 80s is just grim. It, it's grim and it's repressive. And for all the, the myth of uh, Swedish liberalism, you know, kind of, the attitudes are the same as everywhere else in Europe. You know, this idea that, that Sweden is this liberal kind of very open-minded society that all the Scandinavian countries, but it's not, you know, it's quite bigoted when they're, they're kind of like the drunks are talking in their uh, cafe and you, you get a sense of anti-Russian, you know, and you understand that. I was a kid in the 80s, you know, kind of, there was always that threat of death, but uh, it's about that. It's about the suggestions of, Swedish society not what we've been imagined and society not being what you imagine, that there are these horrific things and, you know, kind of the way that things are hidden away from each other, you know, kind of uh, when uh, Virginia, I can't remember her boyfriend's name, uh, he slaps her and, you know, kind of, and there's alcoholism, there's domestic violence, there's child abuse. There's and a grim, grimy Ken Loach atmosphere to it, you know. As he said, we thought Sweden was this paradigm of progressiveness. And he said, no, back in the 1980s, this was just as shit, basically, as, as parts of the UK. It was just as nasty and dirty as that, yeah. But, and it's know, we... a million miles away from vampires in cloaks in Gothic castles, and it's a million miles away from from twilight and that sort of thing it's this is a vampire in a grim and nasty and grubby early urban well, setting and that's that's the brilliance of it i think there's none of the sense of romances there of vampire films with the big r you know that this kind of doomed kind of heroes and stuff mm -hmm. you know th this is just grimmer this is this is how society t leaves some people but some uh, people are left on the fringes and the victims are all from the fringes as well. It's the idea that, you know, kind of, if you're on the fringes, you can't escape. You're either going to be a vampire or you're going to be the victim of a abuse or you're going to be the victim of a vampire. Mm. And, you know, there's all these kind of, uh, I can't believe in the thing where we're talking about the Smiths. Uh, uh, I'm going to call the Dexys, the runner's lyric uh, in... Uh, <laughs> Coming on, uh, Eileen, where it says, you know, all these uh, folks, uh, all these people around here with the smoke dried faces. It's that. It's, you know, these kind of worn down people in worn down lives. And some of the scenes, which aren't really central to the film, but for me are, are some of the most important, are the ones when you have all of characters talking. And, you know, it's there's just this, I don't know, this blandness and it's just kind of, grimy, dragging yourself by your fingers, uh, life that was typical in kind of working class urban areas in the 80s and not just in Sweden, everywhere in Wales. It, uh, and it captured that really, really well. But I think it also captures the idea that in the 80s particularly, we started to become aware that uh, as a society, and I'm talking about Western society particularly, 
we hadn't been very good at keeping kids safe. That the idea of kids should be kept safe was was something that started to come together in the 80s, that the idea actually, yeah, you probably, you know, I always remember, uh, you know, and I will change names, but there was a guy who lived in our town and the advice he pretty much got was just keep away from him. And, and that was pretty much the advice. That was a certain mm. concept of safeguarding, mm. you know. And, and, and that's what the film captures, the idea that kind of kids were almost left to fend for themselves, not in a kind of, where well, you have to feed yourself in that way, but they weren't prepared for the emotional depth required to live in the, you know, a very changing world. And the film captured that all the time. And, but then the adults are equally emotionally stunted as the kids. There's the guy whose name I can't think of uh, with all the cats who uh, witnesses Yorkie's I'm not quite sure. Yeah, you know, kind of, he has, you know, he's got no emotional strength. He's a guy who's locked himself away from the world and surrounded himself with cats. Yeah, and when the cats attack Virginia is the weakest scene in the entire film, admittedly, because, you know... Cats attacking I, scenes are really successful, to be honest. I mean, if you look at Argento's Inferno, yes. these, um, these cats are not leaping through the air. There are obviously cat wranglers off screen, sort of perhaps propelling the cats through the air. But, yeah. well, but I think the ones in Inferno are better than these fairly poorly CGI'd ones. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They have the early 2000s lack of weight of CGI. Yeah, yeah it's difficult to do, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and I think what it does as well is kind of it, it, it's very good at pitching global concerns at the local level because you know it talks about the Russians a few times, it mentions Brezhnev, so you get the sense that the world outside is dangerous, it's concerning, but it never really focuses much on that because it keeps bringing you back to the fact that. Yeah, it doesn't really matter what's outside because there's danger on your own doorstep and there's mm. sadness and there's everything else on your own uh, doorstep. And it, it's it, it's a film that kind of keeps saying, don't think about the big picture, think about the small picture, think about what society looks like for, for you and for small groups of people. And society isn't the bright lights. Society isn't the... Uh, you know, the big cities, society happens here. This is what real life looks like. And, and it's that kitchen sink drama. It's a weird combination of teenage romance, kitchen sink, council estate drama, and vampire film. Yeah. And there's also, I think, a big element of, you know, the whole Nordic noir thing. Yes. And this really, you know, looking at when it was made, kind of prefigures that explosion in Nordic noir. You know, the forest the body being discovered in the middle of the, of the forest, the kind of community that's closed down where nobody really talks to each other and stuff like that. And in some ways, it's five years ahead of its time in, in many ways with that. Oh, absolutely. And uh, kind of the, that was one of the things that made me think of uh, not so much the original Swedish language, uh, Volander, but the English language remit with Kenneth Branagh. Mm. And this, the opening scenes of like the snow against the uh, the street light. Yeah. You know, that, that was something that he used a lot in those scenes as yeah. well. And again, that was another show that used music to explain emotional feel because, you know, the characters couldn't. So, 
I, I draw it to a close. Um, I was just going to say, I, for, I, I completely agree with, like, especially for the time, it's not what you expect of Sweden. Like, Sweden was kind of all Eurovision and beautiful blonde men and women. And this is kind of like a grim, working-class British town feel about it. It's kind of mm. like, nil by mouth with Billy Bookcases is where I walk down. It's <laughs> really grubby and grimy feeling. Well, and I, I just wanted to say as well, I don't think any other podcast, any other horror podcast in the world has quoted in one episode, Morrissey, Princess Di and Kevin Rowlands from Becky the Netrunners. I don't... <laughs> the bar is being raised here, frankly, yeah. isn't it? The bar is being raised, yes. You know, and, and I think uh, it's you know, kind of, the more I thought about it, and I, I started with the framing device of using the Smith lyrics, but, but this is, you know, it's that. It's a Smith song in film form, it's about outsiders, it's about the other, it's about the awkwardness, it's about looking in on society and wishing you could be part of it. And I almost kind of forgot, because it's been a while since I watched it, I forgot how good a film it is. Genuinely, there were times when I was watching it, there was genuinely jaw-dropping how good it was, how beautiful it was, how wonderful it sounded. And, you know, I think it's a a hell of a film, but uh, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your final takes on it. I think it's almost a masterpiece. I think it's profoundly good. Uh, there's a couple of scenes I'm not quite sure about, and I'm not quite sure why they're there. Um, the scene with um, with the woman who's been kind of semi-vampirised and they, they pull the curtains open in uh, in the hospital and she bursts into flame. Now, it's really, really well done. But I do wonder if it's actually necessary. It's very, very literal in a film which up until then has not been so literal. Um, immediately, it's on your, on your nose. Wow, she must be a vampire. This stuff must really be true. And I wonder if that's actually necessary, but... I, I think it's there for a reason, that uh -huh. particular scene, because I agree, on first take, you think, yeah, that is a bit on the nose. Mm. But I think it's specifically on the nose because it's showing that there were things happening in society that unless you saw explicitly, you you didn't follow the thread through to the end. Well, and like that, that, you know, like the, that there are, were people who were missing things that were happening in their society. And, and like the, book is, yeah. the book is far more explicit about this. Yeah. And the know, other thing I'd say is that um, my only other criticism is um, it's not long enough, um, which is a credit to the film, really. I think there's a brilliant mini-series to be made out of this. Um, the whole fact about Ellie and the fact that she was a boy and she'd been castrated, it's dealt with very, very quickly. Um I don't know if the film even really touches on it, does it? It's, it's, hardly, there it's hardly there at all. There's a fantastic five-hour mini-series in this, I would say. But what we have there, there's not an ounce of fat on this on this film. There really isn't. It's it's intensely powerful. It's in, emotionally powerful. It ling it really lingers in your memory, and I think you know. To hell with your poncy romantic vampires. This is something with some real emotional weight to it. And that's not something we often see in a modern vampire film. And I, I, I love it for that. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I think the director is that he, he intentionally cut out the, um, the scenes of talking about transitioning and that sort of thing because it wasn't, it wasn't theatrically 
it couldn't be done theatrically without it being too heavy. Yeah. Um, and which is, is a strange thing to say because it's hardly a light film to start with. So I, I think if you're worried about it being too heavy, there's a lot of other stuff that you can look at as well. But it is brilliant. It's absolutely perfect. And it, it's on that feeling of being an outsider. I can't think of a fan of any genre that fits in more with that than horror fans. Yeah. How many of us do not relate to these? To yeah. These yeah. And so I think if you're making then a horror film and you absolutely hit on the right audience because these we are those outsiders. We were those outsiders at some mm. point. And I think that's the big thing with it. I, I said it, it's not a vampire film because you can connect too well with it emotionally. You understand it too much. It's too close and too personal to be a vampire film because as far as I'm aware, at least of the three of us, none of us have been vampires. We've all been <laughs> awkward 12-year-olds. We've all... That, that first person that you kind of not perhaps fall in love but you first make that emotional connection with and you think you'd do anything for and, and you become best friends we've all been there and that's why it's the so horror cool. of being 12 years old the yeah, horror of being 12 years old yeah the horror of, of those early years of just coming into your teens mm. is the scariest horror that you can put on film mm. and he, he does it fantastically well and the, the vampire element is just added in a, it is so it's but the title does two things, doesn't it? The title is the vampire law that, you know, vampires can't come in unless mm. you explicitly allow them in. But it's also that fear, that first fear of when you truly emotionally open yourself up to someone else and you hope it's the right person, that you hope that for the first time ever you're exposing yourself and it, it's not going to damage you. You know, and it's, it's why the English language remake the title fails. Let me in. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, a very. Yeah, a very. Other places need to go and see this film, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a good film. I, I like. The it's not a bad film at all. It's actually a pretty good film. Yeah, but that title is so. Well, no poetry in that title. No, yeah. I, I think Mark Commode summed up the differences between the two films absolutely perfectly, where he said this is a teenage film that's got vampires in it, and the American remake is a vampire film that has some teenagers in it. And I think that that, that mm. just about sums it up perfectly for me. That that's yeah. the difference. Yeah, I mean, the remake is not a bad film. I, mean, I wouldn't beat down on it for that, but it's... Uh... I, I'm not a big fan, but I'm not a big fan of America remaking yeah. horror films anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, just don't, I just don't get it. I don't, I, but, I, I don't think I've seen one that, that's changed language yet that's been better than the original that I watched. But that's a cultural thing as well, I think, isn't it? I think as much as we were saying you can't really talk about Euro horror... But the experience of living in kind of post-industrial Europe in the 1980s is pretty much the same if you're in Northern Europe. You know, that I'm sure Greece in the 80s or Italy in the 80s was different, but Northern Europe was not. You know, Northern Europe had the same feel and, you know, kind of it's a film about that and we can all understand that. And I can't, the remake, is that set in New Mexico? It's somewhere desert is mm. you know, it's... Uh, and I understand why you would set there in one of the desert states, but you know, kind of, I, I don't think I think it loses some of its universality. Yeah, of course, the remake is actually a Hammer film. Yes, it is. is yeah, it's one of the wonderful films. sort of you know, um, I don't know synchronicity that or something like that. You know, wonderful circular feel to that. And now Hammer again is remaking yeah, films in the way that they always did. Yes. 
they did that and uh was it Wakewood around the same time yeah, as well? Yeah, yeah. The resident the resident the resident, well. yeah, yeah. yeah. Wakewood's very good. I like Wakewood. I, I quite like Wakewood as well. Mm. That's one uh, well, so, some of them are good films, but they're not hammer films as I remember them. But yes. they're, they're not necessarily no. bad films, you know, for yeah, that. Yeah. No. no Wakewood, another useless adult film as well, you know. <laughs> Uh, look, we're all adults, and I think everyone listening uh, will be adults, I hope, as well. So we can see we're all useless adults, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, being put in charge of children never makes you realise just how uh, much authority you actually lack than mm-hmm. when you're trying to say it in something. Exactly. So, well, yeah, and parenthood is kind of trying to fail slightly less every single day in what you're doing, isn't it? You know, it's uh, or certainly my take on parenthood. I, 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 I don't have kids. I have a cat, which is the nearest we've come. But really, teaching is the closest I've come to thinking that, oh, my God, you do this 24 hours a day? <laughs> <laughs> Trying yeah. to fail slightly less is what I do on a daily life, kids or not. That's just, oh, if every day I, I fail a little bit less than I did the day before, then I'm improving. It's all about baby steps. You know, I, you know, I think that's the best philosophy in life. Just try to be slightly less worse than you were the day previously. This <laughs> yeah. is the sort of thing which doesn't look good in the fortune cookie, though, does it? You know, no, 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 really. <laughs> try and be less rubbish today. Oh, great. <laughs> it, looked even worse my, it looked even worse on my CV. <laughs> you know, if you had a range of glitter transfers to put up in kitchens next mm. to you know, living <laughs> other one that says trying to be slightly less incompetent yes. than you were yesterday. Tell me about your last job. Well, it wasn't as bad as the one before that. No. <laughs> Inspirational Instagram quotes in front of a woman doing yoga on a cliff. <laughs> um I just want to say as well, uh, last thing for me, like, as a fan of Johnny Ma, I didn't think I'd be the one coming up with this looking so good. Mm-hmm. But after the <laughs> after the preamble and the way we've gone through this, I think I'm the one now as a Smiths fan. I, I love Johnny Ma, and I always had a bit of a nick about, about Morrissey, and I've been proved right. So I'm more than happy with the way this has gone. I too dearly love Johnny Ma. He seems to be a lovely bloke. Yes, and a very, very talented man. And he was always the mm-hmm. secret behind the Smiths' success, if you ask me. Well, best drummer of his generation, best bass player of his generation as well. They, they had three fantastic musicians, and that was a real strength for them. Yeah. And then a guy swinging some flowers. Um, <laughs> More than that, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get that last the genius of it, though. That was the genius of it. <laughs> so, on to my uh, pick, then, for Euro Horror. So, my film is... Boiled down to it's a woman who buys the orphanage she grew up in to convert it into a home for sick children. And wouldn't you know it, her adopted son disappears while all the kids long past seem to be hanging around. This is the orphanage. Everything around her begins to vanish. Now, she's alone, in the darkness. Four. Three. Two. One. You can open your eyes. So, Gav, I know that... um... My chapters are perhaps not as well structured as yours. And I've played, I don't know how many times in mine, of whether I make one 
and two one chapter or two chapters. In the end, it's two chapters. It'll become one chapter and two again at some point. I'm not going to quote the Spice Girls. With, uh, we've, we've done enough bad quotes. But yeah, at the moment, it's two. Who knows where it'll go? So my first chapter is called Anticipation. So... <laughs> The best film, uh, the best thing about this film for me is just that long, slow burn that we get for a lot of it. I mean, we've done films I did inside first, which is very much the opposite once it gets going and it's very crash, bang, wallop, and there's something happening on screen almost all the time. But with this, it slows it right down and it really gets you invested in what you're watching. It draws you in. And I'll go into the atmosphere as my, as my next chapter. And I'm not saying there's not those cheap, quick skis in there, because there are a few, yeah. but with all of them, you feel like they're very earned. There are only a few cheap skis, and we, we talked about the one already um, where she gets hit by a bus, and we, we think we've seen the worst of it. He comes up with blood on his face, and we get a slight glimpse. And then just when you think that and she's been told that she's passed, and then up she pops with her, her jaw missing and looking absolutely horrific and it really is one of those ones that, that makes you jump but she doesn't look human does she you know it's, no not at all amazing I, makeup job it's amazing yeah yeah and, and you say she doesn't look human and she's kind of got that vibe about her throughout the whole film anyway yeah. she, she's turning up in the house having visited and we're not quite sure who she is or why she's there and she's almost um almost ghostly in herself throughout it all anyway so it really buys into that and again it's because it builds that up slowly you almost forget about it by the time we see her again and then by the time you see her and realize what's going on she's she, she's gone again and then she's back again and then she's gone even quicker so but it really does get you in there i so said the whole thing is kind of dripping in atmosphere the whole time which is, is as i say what i'll go into next but even from the opening scene before we even know what's happening, they're playing that game. And I'm not going to say it in Spanish because I never learned Spanish and it's dreadful it anyway. I did learn French. That's even worse. But when they're playing one, two, three, knock on the door, even before the film has properly started, we've got a little prologue in there. It already feels creepy and has you on edge. It's just kids playing. But because of the, the tone uh, of the, the, the colour palette on the film, you're in instantly, or I was at very least. And it just slowly builds that tension up from the, there's this very little blood in it, despite that scene, which mm. is very bloody. And then we do have the gruesome um, fingernails in the door, which uh, got me on, on edge of it. I've, I've got this thing about nails and fingernails and toenails. And it's my, my one thing that I can't deal with because of um, operations I've had myself. And so it's the one thing I can't look at. And so that scene gets me every time where I have to turn away because I know what's coming. Um, and it almost feels like a time capsule. We talked about this sort of the Spanish Civil War and everything, but this could almost be set at any time, bar one or two scenes where we get a little piece of technology in there. It could exist at any think, time ever almost. I think that is one of his weaknesses though. Because <sighs> the scenes in the orphanage, they don't feel like they're 30 years before, uh, you know, kind of Laura and everybody moving into the orphanage. That feels like the 50s. 
Whereas the film was probably set in the 2000s and she's, and, and that's the only bit that doesn't really connect for me. See, but I think it, it's deliberate as well, I think, because yeah. it's the, you know, I, it's I think the, you sort of lose all track of time of when things happen. Yeah. It, it kind of, it, it doesn't play along a timeline. But, um, it's only when sort of really thinking about it and reading into it that you realise just how long he's been missing for a lot of it because it, yeah. although it's slow when it builds tension, you, you, so because of that, you never really become aware of the time. It does that superbly, doesn't it? Well, that yeah. passing the time of the weather and then the snow. But, you know, it's Tom's Midnight Garden, isn't it? It's Tom's Midnight Garden, but with bodies instead of, you know, redemption. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was beautifully poetic, with bodies instead of redemption. I really like that. Um well, so for me, that that was a good thing. Obviously, you you didn't you, if think as much, but I think because you kind of lose that and you kind of buys into the way that Laura's feeling through a lot of it, which again is another one of my chapters. But I can't keep them apart. There's nothing I can do, Gav. Like they just all blend into one. Um, and because of the way the time runs throughout the film, it's kind of the way that you watch it. You kind of lose that sense of time as well, and so. Because something happening in a party can take a long time to happen. And then it's the same amount of time for months to pass in this. And really, like you say, you only pick it up by the weather changing and the fact that she's moved out of a, a wheelchair and into walking around the house again, having injured her leg. It, it kind of becomes quite difficult. And what's the, um, what's the phrase that you've used, Gav, for um, picnic at Hanging Rock and... Or cosmic horror. Cosmic horror. It kind yeah. of it kind of takes on the timeline of a cosmic horror. Like you're never really sure how long has passed. And I had completely forgot that the reason that she bought the orphanage and gone back um, this time that I watched it was because that she'd been, as you said, as a child. Because it, it all just sort of rushes through so quickly, and yet takes so long at the same time. I, I completely yeah, yeah. I, I I got really thrown during um during the party scene, but kind of in a good way. Um, yeah. so I'm thinking, how long is this going on for? How long has this party been going on for? Yeah. Everybody seems to be looking at her in a strange way, or is she just thinking they're looking at her in a strange way? Is this suddenly going to become a, diff a, a different film to the one I was expecting? So I, I really like that. There's time moves in different ways. Well, in this I think, yeah. I think mean, that's what it does, doesn't it? It's like that picnic at Hanging Rock thing about time. And I'm once yeah. again going to shoot off the weird tangent, unlike me. So I don't know if you've listened to BBC Sounds podcast, Uncanny, which talks about, you know, kind of uh, from a from a rational point of view, where people talk about their experiences mm -hmm. and the, the kind of time slip idea that you can find yourself almost sliding up against other timelines occasionally. Right. comes across in a lot of uh, individual tales and you get that sense really, really well, I think. You absolutely <laughs> do, yeah, yeah. It's, as you said, because the, the earlier scenes, the original scenes in the orphanage, which must have been, I suppose, in the early 80s, something like that. So post-Franco, going back to Franco yeah. again. But it seems like it could be from a, a very much 20 years previously or something. And I actually kind of thought that was kind of a strength of it in some ways, this sense of dislocation and being a little, everything's just a little bit out of time. It's not working as 
as you might expect in some ways. I kind of like that. Mm. Yeah, and it kind of does the same as um, Edgar Wright did with Hot Fuzz, whereby all the action scenes that you think are the things you want to watch, mm. it kind of snips through them. It cuts lots of it. Like when she's searching the house for him, we cut between yeah, scenes. Yeah. And then this was this big action sequence is over in no time. And then we go back to that slow burn. In, in Hot Fuzz, obviously, it's them completing paperwork. Is <laughs> because that, that's what the police sort of procedural actions never really show you. But it, it uses that very well. So the, again, it slows it down by speeding it up because these action sequences where they could have drawn it out and she's going around the house and she's looking and the hide and seek game that they're playing. Mm-hmm. It, it not only does it show sort of how frantic everything is in what they're doing and how frantic they are, but these action sequences are just gone and we're back to this slow burn of what's happening. What's what, what it's, it's quite disorientating. Hugely so. What it reminds me of, and this is the hottest take I think I've ever made on this podcast. This so is a big claim. Well, it reminds me of the books of John Irving. Now, I love John Irving. He, he was my favourite author for many years, uh, and I still do love him, but I probably not with the same fervour. And John Irving's books are about two things, about how we create families amongst groups of people who aren't necessarily family, and also about how the sins of adults are always carried out on the children. And this film does that really well, about her need to create a family, and for whatever reason, she can't have her own children. So, you know, the adoption is seen on and the creation of the house, and then the idea that, you know, kind of the children are the victims of the adults, not directly, but indirectly throughout. Um, you did say as well about time slips in Newport, but I think I was actually Frankenfurter that said that, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's the direct quote I know about time slips. Um, <laughs> my chapter two that instantly that ties in with it is called um, Atmosphere, but by Joy Division and not Russ Abbott. <laughs> because we need that atmosphere to build our anticipation. And that's what it does throughout it all. Oh. There's, there's a, I, I said about sort of Spanish horror and European horror and how it doesn't stick to the script. It doesn't stick to this formulaic thing. But when you boil it down, this absolutely does. And I do this almost every week, it feels like, when I explain what something is and then the film I pick doesn't do it. So there's a familiarity to it all. It's almost trope after trope. This is just a, a haunted house film. It's the same as mm. almost every other haunted house film. It's got a lighthouse and, and waves crashing onto a beach and a cave and haunted children. Like, this couldn't be more formulaic. And by the same token, it's like nothing else we've ever seen. And the the whole setting of it is what sets it up. And because of having that, that familiarity and we kind of know what's going to happen, we're kind of waiting for that. And what it does is even before anything has happened, before the plot has even started to get scary, their anticipation started to build on us. So even when he's just wandering around this, this cave, we already know something's going to happen and he invites his imaginary friend coming up to my house and we can play together. And nothing at this point happened, but we're already on edge because we know where this goes. We know what this does. This has been done a million times. And uh, the director said that you know it was kind of based on 70s Spanish horror. That's the look that they wanted it to have. And it's very much that. And like you said, you can go even further back. We can go back to, to earlier Ama House of Horror in, in, in some respects because of this setting. It's 
been done so many times and it, it's kind of beautiful and it's dreamy but it, it's also so creepy and everything just creaks and groans and every step has got that in it because it it's an old house and they say we've got those waves crashing that atmosphere builds a, a fantastic tension and you really feel it to the point of like i've got goosebumps at sometimes watching this film without anything really happening it's genuinely gothic, isn't it? You know, yeah. in that kind of, uh, in that sense, but not in a really heavy-handed way. You know, kind of, it doesn't feel the need to have massive gothic buildings and stuff. You know, it, but that sense of doom, oh god, uh, it's it's like uh, the M.R. James story, Turn of the Screw, that yes. became the film The Innocence. It's very the Innocence is what I, I was, was going to mention. The Innocence, yeah, that, that's <laughs> what it is, and maybe the, the others as well. I think, yeah. but what you were saying there, Gav, about it's classically gothic. It's the woman going back to the dark old house mm -hmm. where something is revealed. Yeah. It, yeah. It's like the others, but much, much better. You know? I, I like <laughs> the others, but this is better. I like the others, but this is better. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think the others is great until the end when I hate it. Yeah, but come on. I mean, this film would have been would have been improved by the presence of Eric Sykes. Oh, it? yeah, of course. What <laughs> film is not good? <laughs> What, what film isn't improved by the... Uh, you know, well, exactly, sure, yeah, exactly. I'm not sure how we'd fit in that the right one in, but... Uh, yeah, we, we... Yeah, we we find a role for him, yes. <laughs> when we do the musical version and we can CGI Eric Sykes, we'll... we'll <laughs> <laughs> like Tupac or uh, Kim Kardashian's father, just like the hologram image. Hologram. Not like Kim Kardashian, because he'd just be talking about Kanye West that he wouldn't quite fit with the rest <laughs> of the plot, but... Yeah. <laughs> Um, my third chapter is quite simply called Creepy Fucking Kids because, and I've said it before <laughs> about how creepy kids in horror film, and I've got two of my own and we know that they can have creepy moments in themselves. Kids are, they, they're creepy, essentially. I love them. They're great, but they have their moments where they scare the shit out of me. And I think Thomas is one of the scariest, creepiest kids in all of horror. Like, forget Damien or Regan or the Grady twins. I Thomas, for me, is the one that always sticks out in my head there with the, the bag on his head and, and Laura shouting out his name. I think Thomas is, is a, a genuinely creepy, creepy child. But even the kids who are not Thomas, who are not, they, they, they always, they play on your own vulnerable, they're vulnerable. And it makes you vulnerable as a parent. I mean, we've talked about some of the roles we play as adults and it, it creates our insecurities. As soon as you become a parent, you kind of forget about yourself a little bit because it's all about having to, to look after this, this vulnerable person. And all your insecurities are then passed on to, to that role. I've, I've, when you, I've become a father, like all my insecurities of how I felt about myself has gone out the window because all my insecurities of what I'm like as a parent now and what I'm like in that role. And anyone who's got kids will feel that way. And anyone who's got kids will also know how incredibly creepy they are. My youngest used to be the worst for it and would just say or do the weirdest things. Um, and so I've, I've just, there was two that I wrote down that I thought ties in perfectly to this film and ties in perfectly to my fourth chapter, which I'll come on to later. But uh, my youngest, we were sat in the car once in the dark and he said, there's a man stood at my window and he looks funny, which driving in the dark is, is creepy enough. Having just watched Sixth Sense, it, it makes it even worse. Um, and he also, 
That's a perfect little horror story. Isn't it? It's a perfect horror story. There's a man stood at my window and he looks funny. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, and we were Real in the dark, just, just parked up. Yeah. Uh, and there was also one time he said, uh, Dad, look at that man up there swinging in the tree. And I'll be honest, that's the... that's the Yeah, OK, let's get in the house. We're going to get in the house and lock the door. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> You do live in Valkyrie, though, mate. So you know, it's possible <laughs> living something in the tree. Yes. Well, they, we we weren't uh, we weren't living there at the time. This was after we had moved, and so, but it's still creepy valleys down there. Yeah, I'll give you that. Still creepy valleys, village. Um, we talked about deliverance. Like what the Valkyrie could be in there. We could we could reset it. We we're only we're only a, a canoeable river away from being able to set. We've we gone through deliverance into the Wicker Man. It's like it's. <laughs> <laughs> And so I that that's a big thing for me. Like we, we a lot of the films we've done have had children involved in this. And I know that the, the first episode we did was about birth and children and babies. And it's an inherently creepy, creepy thing. And like you said, like I, the first time I watched this, I had a newborn. And particularly when you get to the ending, it absolutely reduces you down to I, I was in tears the first time I watched it and I was three quarters of the way through watching it this time when I realised what the ending was and I'm not going to lie, I've cried again and it, it, it absolutely breaks me, it, it's such a, a heartbreaking ending it, 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 took, it took me three attempts to watch it all the way through because you know I'm, I'm the father of an adopted child and Realizing what had happened happened to Simon, and I I couldn't cope with it. Uh-huh. I, I I emotionally couldn't cope with it to the point when I I was so tightly wound that by the end of it, I kind of and I said this uh, in a message to Steph earlier. I said it's weird. I've watched two horror films in preparation for this pod, both of which reduced me to tears. Wow. The end of both films, just I've I've been wound up to such a point, I think, and emotionally tight. That at the end, the only option was to cry, and I do cry a lot. So you know, it's not hugely <laughs> unusual, but but and both films just reduced me to tears because for different reasons. I think it was just a, re- a release of tension, and like the use in this, and the tension is brilliant. The only film I think that builds tension better than this is the Japanese Ring Ringu, which is a film that makes me tense just thinking about it. And and then at the end of let the right one in it was almost relief because i wanted it to be a happy ending and when it was a happy ending i was pleased but the, the tension in this is unbelievable yeah but, you know and like you say steph the kids in this are weird and oh yeah. They are. yeah i mean i'd also say compared to let the right one in i think we're kind of on board with with oscar and and ellie mm-hmm. you know we, we, we're kind of cheering them on the kids in this they are creepy kids. I know Oscar and Ellie are creepy, but these kids are really creepy. There's just something the kid, the kid who plays some Simone. Yeah. It's, it's a really good performance in the annals of creepy kid performances. You know, I don't know if it's the way he just looks at camera or the way he moves, but there is something a little bit unnerving about him from the very first scene. He's the, yeah, he again. He's the outsider. He's the Lovecraftian outsider. In this, in this, in this family unit, and yeah. it's filling to the damned a bit, doesn't it? You know, where... a bit of that with his eyes, these lovely <laughs> eyes that he's got, which are just, ooh, what's going on behind those eyes? Yes, um, yeah. we've also got that feeling of that sort of 
sometimes that, that lack of emotion and also that, that taking away of innocence because he's taking his medication because he's got HIV. And so that would yeah. be, mm-hmm. there's almost that same feeling as we got with Let the Right One In or of he's going through this the same, like in a very different way, yeah. but he hasn't got the complete innocence of a child. And no, sometimes it's he told me I was going time. to die soon. Yeah. My God, imagine that. Yeah. Wow. As a child, I, and he is, you know, he's not a supernatural, he's just a child. And yeah, to have and that thing said to you, you're going to die soon. That's... But, and it, but he's so matter of fact in the way that he reads it back and asking the questions, well, what happens if I don't take these pills? Well, like, will I die if I don't take this? Yeah. And so, well, you, you're okay for sort of days, weeks, months. Mm. Which obviously then ties into when he goes missing, just mm. how important how long has he got time is. Yeah. yeah, how long has he got it's before? Chil- it's children being forced to inhabit adult worlds again, isn't it? You yeah. know, it's. Uh... Um, we we talked as well about the atmosphere and creepy kids, um, the, the masks that they wear at the party. I, I no, can we? If anyone ever throws a children's party, we just promise we'll never get those masks. I think they've made them themselves, but just burn them in a fire. Do something with them. Those masks do not need to be put on anybody's face. They are terrifying. They Man, they are up there with the wicked wrong man. anyway. Mm. You know, kind of. I don't. You know, can uh, Philip? You probably have more uh, experiences anyway in Venice with the uh, the carnival and the. You know, oh, of course, yeah. You know, masks are just weird. Yeah, and especially those slightly faceless ones. Yeah. Yeah, anybody could be behind them. There's something very, very macabre. The idea of the mask in general, and it goes back to Cheney and Phantom of the Opera. And actually, I thought Thomas's makeup was quite Cheney-like, mm. like Phantom of the Opera-like in yeah. this. Yeah. But masks are just there to be called off and to reveal what's beneath. And, and of course, something, again... something deeply, deeply macabre unsettling about them yeah it's venice of course carnival these faceless beautifully painted masks and they and, all look the bloody same that's what <laughs> yeah. and, you know you say about you know it needs to be to be mm. taken off and revealed and that's exactly what we get at the end mm. when she thinks she found she finds thomas and then yeah. we realize it's simon and, and the accident that's happened and we get that explained and it's actually explained in a really good way as well. It could have been mm. one of those ones that if it had been done a little bit heavy-handed, mm. it would have, it would have mm. been great. But the way that they cut between the two and that the blanket that falls out of her hands when she when she oh, wishes yeah. the ghosts away is it, absolutely... Oh. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it really is heart-wrenching. It, 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 well, I say it's just reduced me to tears and, and you as well, Gary. It's, it's a family tragedy. It's not a horror film. Where the romance... you know, I sometimes wonder, actually, if tonight... Are we doing the right podcast? I think sometimes we've actually chosen two films, which maybe are not actually horror films at all. But I mean, well, that's a running theme almost every week now. I think yeah. every horror film we pick, we say, "Well, is it actually a horror though?" Well, you know, Dracula in 1972 is quite obviously a rock musical, isn't it? So it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to think that horror doesn't exist. I think it's, <laughs> it's just something. Never mind if Euro horror exists; it can't exist because but horror in itself is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm about to do something on the. Uh, audio podcast, which is a bit pointless, but I've got a book here called We Don't Go Back, A Watcher's Guide to Folk Horror, and at least 50% of the stuff it talks about in this book isn't horror, mm. but it, it captures the heart of horror, it captures mm. the, you know, kind of what horror is, a sense of other, a sense of weirdness. Mm. Mm. What's, what's it called again, by the way? 
It's called We Don't Go Back, A Watcher's Guide to Folk Horror by Howard David Ingham. I would there we go. I should look that up. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe horror doesn't exist and we've all just, just become a collective. It's become a Mandela effect in itself. Um, <laughs> which will take me on to my final chapter, which is called Blurred Lines, but definitely not by Robin Thicke. So I think what this does quite well, and again, it's something we've touched on in other podcasts, is it really blurs the line between what's real and what's imagined. And first of all, that's just whether these kids are, are imagined or not, whether Laura's going a little bit mad. And again, the way that that's cut, the way that it's all put together and whether she's just bought into to Simon's game a little bit too much. Because you can see her when the game starts and he's looking for the coins, how she starts off sort of a little bit apathetic towards him. By the end of the game, she's really bought in and she's excited as he is until he finds the coins and she realises the significance of what they were looking for. And that kind of happens throughout the film. And you start to wonder whether it's just a madness and whether you, you, you doubt everything. You, you doubt Simone you, 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 and what she must go through. You start to doubt as well. And you doubt whether they are these ghosts. You doubt whether, you know, what she's done. You can literally see the madness setting in with her. She becomes more frantic and she becomes more scared of, of what might be happening in the house and, it's really brilliant in the way that it's done. And what it does then is really build it up for that heartbreaking, spine chilling emotion at the end. And we get sort of glimpses of that in the seance. The, the seance is quite a difficult scene to get through because oh, okay. the, the kids screaming and asking for help and the, clearly the effect that it's having on her. And so we get a glimpse of that ending there. Of, and I think the trouble is when we get to the end then and we know it's not, like we know it's not in madness when she starts playing the, the one, two, three knock on the door the second time, which if the first time was creepy, the second time is at a whole new level because we know it's going to come and the way that camera pans from her to the doorway and the first twice when you're expecting something and there's nothing and then we see one and then we see him getting closer and you kind of on the third one, you're kind of expecting him to be there and he's not, but there's more of them. And then that hand just reaches up and taps her on the shoulder, which is, is it's terrifying, but it's also that relief of, of that they you've got the relief of knowing that they're there, but then you've got this added tension of we don't know what their intentions are, we don't know mm. why they're there. Are, are they good? Are they not? Have they taken Simone? Like what what are their intentions with all? And that what that's what really adds to the extra heartbreak at the end. Is because and the interesting thing as well is. It's a ghost story that, in reality, might have only existed in the heads of one in the head of one person. Yeah, this is its yeah. brilliance. It's like the innocence. Yeah, yes. in that respect, that's the brilliance of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it might be a ghost story. Thomas might exist. All those things might exist, or this might be purely exactly. one woman's yeah. way of dealing with grief. Mm. Yeah, because, yeah, uh, everyone else has left the house by the time she's yeah. forced because. I say in this madness, she starts to build the orphanage exactly as it was. She puts the beds back. Mm -hmm. puts, it starts by putting the doll back where the doll should be. And then it all sort of escalates. And like you said, everyone else has left the house by the time the ghosts appear. Well, so I think we it don't know. Because you're saying this is a, a useless adult movie. Um, but the way she's actually, Laura is actually reacting here, it does kind of make logical and internal mm -hmm. sense to her. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Whereas her partner is 
it's not a great role for the actor. It's an underwritten part, and he is just there to be a bit useless, basically. But what Laura is doing, actually, I think, yeah, it it's internally and logically consistent, I think, with her character. That's what she would do. Yeah. What can I do? It's almost like a scientific experiment. If I put things back the way we were, then maybe we can work through this problem and that. I, I think what it does as well, and I think in the hands of a less skilled director and less skilled writers, it, it, it wouldn't have the same emotional impact. But what it does is never allows you to just settle into understanding what's going on. Yeah. And the best part in the entire film for me is the seance scene, because the seance scene is that there is something happening and then it's explained as well, away as well, you know, and and it would have been quite easy for that to turn into a supernatural horror film from that point, but it doesn't. Mm. It closes it down and makes the world much smaller instead of much bigger, uh, and it's that's the point at which I wasn't enjoying the film, and that, at that point I was like, oh my word, no, this is something else. This is a very, very clever film. And then by the end of it, just absolutely blown away by the emotional heft that the film carries, which I partially didn't help because I'd mistaken it for uh, the Guillermo del Toro film, The Devil's Backbone. In my yeah, head, I got the two films mixed up. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, we, we had that conversation. Um, my partner is, is seeing this as well. She's, she, we've talked about this before. She's not a horror fan in the slightest. Now, she was made to watch it in Spanish lessons in a GCSE and she had watched the two and we had exactly the same conversation. She was like, is it, is that the bit where, and I was like, no, no, that that's Pan's Labyrinth. And then we go, is that the bit where, no, 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 that's, and then we go on to another. <laughs> and so they were all sort of intertwined, but they are very different films, but they've got that same effect and atmosphere that runs through them all, that they are so similar in some respect. Um, Gavi said about how difficult it was to watch that. Uh, before I get to that, um, you're right as well to say about the um, how small it gets. And I think that's what the film does from the time he goes missing, is it just continues to just make that loop small and tighten that loop around you. So it starts off where everybody's looking for Simon and the police yeah. are involved and we see posters all over the town. And yeah. then slowly it dwindles down. And then people are saying, well, nobody else seen this ghost at the party, this, this masked child at the party. No one else remembers seeing that. And so it goes, and then even to the point where after the seance, not only do the people who were helping go, but then even her husband sort of leaves her alone. And so, as you say, in the end, she's just a lonely figure. It's just her and then her alone. And it does just slowly, and you don't really notice it happening until the end, but that loop does just keep tightening and tightening on her until Both. she's alone. That's right. You don't, see, you don't see that loop tightening. Yeah, I think that's very clever. I like that. Yeah, until both the films until right at the end. Yeah. Both the films are about the destructive power of certain emotions, aren't they? Yeah. You know, let right when it's about the destructive power of, of loneliness, and this is about the destructive power of grief. You know, they they they're far more subtle films than either of them would suggest, because you've got a vampire film and you've got a ghost film. But they're not, you know. They they are films about the destructive nature of human emotions. It's and and it takes quite skilled filmmaking. But that's you know, quite skilled filmmaking to do it well. But that's the nature of horror, isn't it? Good horror isn't about the monster under the bed. 
it's about human emotions and and the darker places human emotion takes us. Um, and you you said how difficult it was to watch, and I can tell you what's harder than watching it is having to watch that ending a second time and know what's coming because. <laughs> when she delivers the lines and she says, telling him to, to think of his future and wish away the ghost. And she says, think of your father, think of next Christmas, think of the boy you'll grow up to be. I was absolutely Oh God, no, that. I, I can feel my emotions going again, I, but I was gone. I was absolutely gone by that point. And then when I think I just sort of closed the laptop and sat on my own for like 10 minutes, because I, I can't talk to anyone a minute. They say as a, as a parent, it really hits you hard. The, the Peter Pan kind of sequence at the end when they're yeah. all just nestling on her lap. Oh. And you know it's fantasy. You know, this is the delirium by the overdose of sleeping pills, probably. Oh, but, it, oh, oh is it? Is it? Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, is it? Or, or is it telling us that there's something else beyond? You know, it's yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's a more I hopeful thing. I read it both ways. It's like last week, uh, last episode, Smokey was talking about the optimistic ending to the thing. Yes. Which, to be honest, is that word optimistic is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but I think maybe, okay, she died. Is there a moment in which she is reunited with him? I don't know. It's open to interpretation. I think. And, and that's it. Often she still dies, but I think there might be a moment of you know people on the other side. I don't know. But, but, but this is a cultural thing, there. isn't it? You know, we I said last week about how in uh, Ringu, you know, because it's a Japanese film, the only explanation you get is well goblins, because you know mm -hmm. Japanese people will buy that, because you know kind of goblins in yokai are part of their uh, their folklore. And I think because Spain is such a strongly Catholic country, whatever mm. that means in a secular age, yeah, you know that's going to resonate with Spanish people. Yeah, yeah, you know, that, yeah. this makes sense. I I understand that. That is what I've been promised. So this makes sense to yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I think what it offers is just like that that glimmer of light in the darkness. It, mm. it, it's yours if you wanted it. It this it's the lighthouse. It's the lighthouse of the film. Indeed, oh, I like that. Yes, yeah. And it, it's there if you want it, yeah. Yeah, and you know, he picks up the necklace and the door opens and he looks up with a smile. Yeah. As if he, he whether it's now that he believes or he wants to believe or he sees it himself or yeah. wants to see it himself, there's that and that is it that's down to your interior. It offers you that that get out if you want it. It's it's a happy ending, isn't it? Because if it's about the destructive power of grief, it's telling you there is a path out of grief, and grief yeah. can be, you know, it's that light reflecting off the lighthouse onto your window. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Which is a lovely image, I thought. Yeah, the, the, the very beginning, you know. Yeah, it, um, the child who won't go to sleep, so you show him the magic moon on the on the window, yeah. Yeah, it is, it's all very dark, but it's very beautiful. And if you can't get that out of the gothic uh, film and literature, then I, that you're not going to find it anywhere else. Um, so that that's my take um, on the orphanage. I don't know whether either of you wanted to add anything yourselves. I, I will say that actually, strangely, both of these films are new to me. I um, yeah. I should really have seen Let the Right One In because, of course, it was you know it was a kind of a phenomenon at the time. I'd never seen it. And I was aware of the orphanage again. I'd never seen it. So really two fantastic films and absolutely like the last episode. Yeah. If I had a cinema, I'd program these two together and, you know, people would be in bits when they came out at the end. They actually, <laughs> people will come out and say, bloody hell, I need a drink after that. But um, really two fantastic films. Much like a Morrissey gig. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 
some of the best gigs I've been to were Morrissey gigs, but I'm trying not to think about that. I, I too have been to some wonderful Morrissey gigs, and now we have to feel conflicted about that, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, we have this chat in our group chat, don't we, Steph? Sometimes, you know, like it's all right to uh, like the art and think the artist is a wanker. Well, you know, it's like, I mean, I, I deeply love Richard Wagner, as you might know from my Twitter feed, but I've never felt the, the, the urge to invade Poland, so... <laughs> well, I think uh, with Wagner, I, you, go, I, you go one of two ways with Wagner. Yeah. You either want to invade another country, or you get heavily into uh, folklore and uh, and mythology, don't you? you know, exactly, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> as someone with Polish heritage, I thank you for not wanting to invade. <laughs> You have my word. You have my word. <laughs> I take it this isn't the Wagner that was on X Factor a few years back either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that was complex when you were Googling him or seeing things. <laughs> He's always trending on Twitter. I'll have a look at this. So, I mean, he's let himself go, hasn't he? I don't think, oh, I think he's looking good for his age. Well, I, I don't think he did Tristan and Isolde on the X Factor, did he? But, uh, yeah. Well, that would have been quite a long show, to be honest. Well, it would be, it would be a popular commercial break season, but yeah. About seven hours long, isn't it? <laughs> um, so, Philip, you've got, I think, one of the most difficult ones so far when it comes to making the choice of who wins. But before we get to that, we always do our also runs as well. So, is there anything else that you can think of that you would have included, maybe? This is a difficult one, because what are we thinking of here? What's the genre... Um, Euro dysfunctional family horror, and that's that's a bit of a niche. And genuinely, I mean, obviously, I was we were thinking we talked about The Innocents earlier, but that's a, that's a British film. Um, the only one I can think which remotely comes into this genre uh, was Mario Bava's last film called Shock. Yeah, um, which is basically a woman with her new husband has a spiteful and slightly weird kid who is not reacting well to the new father. And things happen which could be happening in the mind of the protagonist or could be down to something supernatural. Now, it's not peak Mario Bava. I mean, it was his last film. There is a tremendous performance by Daria Nicolodi at the centre of it. Um, and really, this is the only one I could kind of think of in the dysfunctional, <laughs> dysfunctional Euro family horror genre. What I, do, the, I do think it's worth a watch. Mm. What about other Euro horrors? What other Euro horrors? You know, just, uh, any uh, film made in Europe, really, what do you say about uh, you would recommend? Oh, I, I, I know you're a, a Giallo uh, fan. So oh, yeah, I, I love Argento's films. Everything by Argento between 1970 and 1986, between The Bird of the Crystal Plumage and Opera, is fantastic. There are good films after that, but you kind of have to cherry pick them. Mario Bava made amazing films throughout his whole career, and he made beautiful horror films like um, Black Sunday and Black Sabbath. He made a brilliant science fiction film, Planet of the Vampires, which you can see the, the influence on Alien there, right from the word go. He made a brilliant, wonderful, camp as hell spy movie or in danger diabolic. His range is amazing. He made Friday the 13th, eight years before Friday the 13th with Bay of Blood. He was an absolute genius. If you go to uh, a Germany 
obviously Herzog's remake of Nosferatu is a beautiful, beautiful film. I do understand what you said the other episode. It's not a date movie, you know. Um, not it's really, a, no. It's a, it's a one-date movie, you know. Because yeah. <laughs> it's, it's darkly erotic, but in a kind of icky <laughs> yeah. way. In an, very, very icky way, yeah. yeah. Spain, Jess Franco was a mad filmmaker, and most of his stuff was absolute bollocks. But occasionally, he will make some great bollocks. And so a, a lot of his stuff is worth checking out. Um, Lucio Fulci, the most extreme of Italian horror filmmakers. His zombie film, uh, Zombie 2, zombie which two. is not really, yeah, it is, it's amazing. <laughs> the, the imagery in some of his films is extraordinary and grotesque, but sometimes in a really good way. Anyway, that's just some of my thoughts, some of my favourite horrors, yeah. Zombie 2, I love, and I, I don't know if the um, Circus of Horrors we went to see, which is a stage. Oh, yeah. And that's probably the closest I've come to seeing Fulci in real life. Because some of the <laughs> things know. they do are so completely over the top. And yeah. the music that, that's thrown in there. I would recommend anyone listening to go and watch it. It's one of my favourite. And the audience get involved and dress up as well. And they, they have stooges in the audience. And so they, they, there's things happening all the time. It's brilliant. It's one of my favourite things. But it, it very much reminds me of Fulci and just how over the top and holy yeah. and... Yeah, and sometimes I go really sexual. It can be it's brilliant. Well, it, it, if you're looking for a night out, again, maybe not a date, depending on who you think <laughs> is, but but circus of horrors, I would certainly recommend. Uh, Gav, I know that there was uh, a couple of you might have considered before you settled on that the right one in. Yeah, I, I kind of I, I kind of shifted between the four films really. Uh, one was uh, Guillermo del Toro's uh, Pan's Labyrinth, uh, which is. A brilliant film, an absolutely yeah. brilliant yeah. film. But uh, my my eldest son, who I I got into kind of similar films to me, and we sat watching them. We watched the end of it. It's got a really powerful end, and he turns to me and goes, "I assume there's not a blooper reel." At the end, <laughs> <laughs> the fucking <one's> Labyrinth, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which uh, kind of always sticks in my head. But yeah, Pan's Labyrinth was one. Uh, the other was, and I don't know if it qualifies as a Euro horror. It's set in Europe, I suppose, with Midsummer. Uh, yeah. which, which I like, but I, I don't think it's great. But I think it's quite an interesting film about how uh, Americans view Europe. You know, <laughs> it's the, so that's why I didn't pick that. And then the two I kind of... One I really wanted to, but it's quite difficult to find, which is a weird early 70s Spanish film called Who Could Kill a Child? Oh, that's so, brilliant. That, that is that's fantastic, that's yes. Robert yeah. Powell. And yeah. this, I can remember, I think mm. it was on Channel 4. This would be about mid-80s, so I was kind of 14. And I remember coming across it, and there's a scene where he guns down a pile of kids in the, uh, in the village square. Yeah. and It's, it's it, immensely powerful. I mean, I, I, I maybe I saw it at about the same time, because it was in the days when Channel 4 would show films like that, you know, yes. late, late at night. And, hey, there's an audience for this on Channel 4. Yeah, that's, that's a good film, yeah. Oh yes, and you know, kind of, I was really strongly pushing towards it, but it's quite mm. difficult to find. Now. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, which is why I didn't go for it. And then the last mm. one, and it's really not a me film at all, but I was going to try and outgo Steph, is uh, the French Belgian film Calvaire. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Yeah. That I don't know. No. Uh, it is. It, it's weird. It's 
Blackley comic about uh, a kind of faded kind of crooner who's doing a tour of rural retirement homes singing torch songs to disinterested people who drugged off their faces and then something absolutely horrific happens uh, but all the time you're forced to laugh at what's happening because it's so darkly comic and it's unbelievably gory mm. it's part of the you know it's the end of the French new extremity and it is extreme but what it does have uh, that uh, something that martyrs which I'm forever saying how much I hate it doesn't have it it has a soul and martyrs doesn't have a soul I haven't seen martyrs and I honestly I suspect I never will I just don't think I've got it in me it, it's one of those films that if you watch it you will only ever want to watch it once yeah one of those yeah yeah I, I watched it and I, I I will admit I probably wasn't in the right frame of mind to be watching that anyway but I came mm. on and just thought that that that's like Two hours of torture, right there. It, it doesn't sound like a back from the pub movie, to be honest. No, and we, we talk <laughs> about films that are not first date films. Like that, that's not an any date film. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a film. If you know, it's a film yeah. about how terrible humanity is. So you have to be in quite a strong place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I I once took a girl to see a Hawkwind concert on the first date, <laughs> and uh, and there was no second date. So <laughs> I, I, I I'm really well aware of how these things work. But. I saw Hawkwind at Brixton Academy on a third date, I believe. Oh, but, what, uh, mm. what, but was yeah. it a fourth date? <laughs> uh, I thought they were, yeah. Well, there we go. That's good. There we go. Well done, you. I also had Who Could Kill a Child. I thought it was a brilliant one. We talked about how uh, you, you shouldn't kill the dog or the cat, and we talked about how creepy kids are, and that's the film that puts them both together. Um, yeah. It was it was definitely an option for me. Suspiria was an option for me um, that I considered, um, and then more modern ones. Um, Ulia's Eyes. I don't know if you've seen. It's a very good film um, about um, a woman with a degenerative eye condition, and so as the film goes on, she sees less and less, but she's hunting down a murderer. Um, that's an absolutely excellent Spanish film and well worth a look. Um, Frontiers, I consider, just for being absolutely yeah. mad, uh, which is a great film about um, neo-Nazism, um, seen through the eyes of two Algerians in Paris going to the, the French countryside, which is they, bonkers, yeah. but, but excellent. They're like petty criminals, aren't they? And yeah. They're trying to, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. trying to escape uh, yeah. Paris during riot, race sort of related riots yeah. um, and then stumble across this these Hitler-loving neo-Nazis in a, in a countryside farm, which is, um, again, a mad film, but, but well worth a watch. Yeah, and, yeah. All, uh, of all the farms we could have stopped at. Calvera's quite similar as well. Calvera's that thing as well, and, you know, like where they rocked up at the wrong place at the wrong time. And then um, Eel or Them, which became The oh, Innocents, yeah. uh, The Innocents, The Strangers, um, when, when they remade in America, which is the one what that perhaps I would say is it's not a, a like for like remake, it's more a loosely based, but that would be the one that I would say that when it was uh converted to an English uh, audience, an American audience, it was the one that I preferred. But Eel is still a very, very good film with a, a, just a terrifying end. Um, of I watched that after you recommended or after the inside episode, yeah, and the end is just yeah, jaw dropping. Yeah, it, it's just so because when you try and explain so much in your mind, the ending of that which takes away any sort of explanation, just 
it, it just it just was it just is it, <laughs> yeah it, it, it's well worth a watch so they were they were my um they were my others that I considered but obviously I went for the orphanage in the end because it is one of my favorites if not my favorite um and so that's all that's left for is for you to choose which one was your favorite oh my goodness me well, before we started recording tonight, I was absolutely convinced of what I was going to choose. Because both of these, let's be honest, are excellent films. They're not just excellent horror films, they're excellent films. And yeah, you stick these two on a double bill, and, and that is fantastic. And I think, in all honesty, I think, Steph, you came very, very close to making me think that it was going to be The Orphanage. But I have to say... I think The Orphanage is a brilliant film, but Let the Right One In, I think, is a masterpiece. And I'm going to go over that, I'm afraid. Yeah, that's why like I, I think you, you summed it up quite It's very close to being. It's one. very, very close. It yeah. is very, very close. Yeah. Maybe, maybe less CGI cats. <laughs> <laughs> but really, thank you for introducing me to both these films because I was so behind with this. You know. Um, the Orphanage is a little bit less known, but let the right one in. I should bloody well have seen that by now, but I haven't seen it. So thank you so much for, for choosing this programme. Yeah. Well, it, it made, it's made me really happy that you hadn't seen it because I do think they are sort of two films that you, you really should see at some point. Yeah, definitely. And it was very much at the time where I was watching sort of horror on a constant basis, and I'm kind of mm. back to that now because of this podcast and I'm loving it. But um, yeah, they're, they're two excellent films and they married together. Watching them back to back, it is difficult emotionally. I would say yeah. it's very, it takes yeah. its toll very much, but they're two excellent films. Mm. So that's all that left is left is the same. I thank you. So thank you first of all to you, Philip. Where can our listeners find you? Right. Okay. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Um, and I'm at PG Jones Venice. Um, I have a website, philipgwynjones.com. Uh, just to point out, there is another Philip Gwynne Jones who's also in writing, um, <laughs> but I spell my name the proper way, G-W-Y-N-N-E. Um, so philipgwynjones.com. Not, not like um, that charlatan. Not that like that. <laughs> <laughs> we occasionally get emails meant for the other, yes. So <laughs> He doesn't write Venice-based mystery novels. He doesn't write Venice mystery novels, no, but he is in publishing, yes. But, um, but, you know, um, Waterstones, Amazon, my books are on there. The Angels of Venice comes out in July. And I, I try and throw in a few horror-based jokes in each book. So there we go. And Frog references. Oh, yeah, of course. Yes. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a Philip Jones book without those, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, my sweet, but definitely up yours now. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, well, I've started. I've started reading one. I'm kind of uh, really enjoying it uh, so far. I, uh, I'm, sadly, I don't have enough time to read it all before we. Uh... No, terrific. But thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and it's been a, it's been an absolute joy to be here tonight. Thank you so much. It's been to, to come onto a podcast and to blether on about horror films for two hours. That's a good night in for me. <laughs> and a, a glass of red wines with all as well. You can't. Indeed, yes. The mysteriously refilling glass of red wine. Yes. Right. <laughs> uh, Gav, another win for you. Ending, I, I was on a bit of a streak that's come to an end. I think fully deserved. Or it was. Uh, it was going to be a difficult one to choose either way. I think, but well then. I, I think that's the season now. I think I, uh, I'm mathematically assured the championship. Teams for Porter. 
Don't, Are you hiring the open top bus? Yeah. <laughs> don't take away all the all the joy and excitement in this. We've got to build this up. We need to build some sort of tension. <laughs> yeah, away goals count double all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, I'll do it. We'll have 10 points on the last episode. That's always going yeah. to happen. Last goal wins. Yeah. <laughs> so, Gav, thanks very much again, as always. And thanks to you for listening. Bye now. Thanks.